So today is uh, Shabbat Shuvah, this uh, Sabbath of return, and it is a very appropriate day uh, for us to have a Messiah's table. We might say, well, why is it an appropriate day? It took place at Passover, right? We should uh, do it at Passover. Well, of course, we do it at Passover, right? And uh, we know that it was at a Passover Seder uh, that we read uh, the words of the Messiah in a number of places. One is in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Yeshua took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Right? And when, he had given, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it is, of course, very interesting, uh, because when you look at the scriptures as a whole, you know, like from uh, Genesis to Revelation, without thinking of it as two uh, different uh, entities, you know that meals with God are really important in the Bible, right? And uh, the, unfortunately, this is not the time to talk about all those meals. Uh, uh, we, we have talked about that on numerous occasions, right? You have the bread of the presence. You have the great passage in Isaiah. I believe it's in the 26th chapter about the great banquet, uh, you know, that's going to uh, happen uh, in the future, we even read about when Moses goes up the mountain, that he has a meal with God. Uh, and then, of course, in the book of Revelation, at the end, uh, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. These meals uh, with God are very, very Im important. Now, of course, uh, because uh, you read the words here in Matthew chapter 26 and elsewhere, this is my uh, uh, flesh, or this is my body, and then you read, this is my blood. And then uh, you read uh, certain verses in the Gospel of John. Unfortunately, in the history of the uh, quote-unquote church, uh, there was this big discussion about what is it, right? Of course, they were asking the wrong question, right? Uh, because Yeshua was not, was not uh, talking about ever or thinking about, nor his hearers, what the bread and the cup are made of, okay? Uh, that never even entered their mind uh, that it would be anything akin to the flesh and blood of Yeshua. Why? Because that would be really like a major sin, right? Uh, to eat flesh and drink blood, right? So uh, regardless of uh, one's background, uh, that's not what he was talking about. Well, then, of course, what was the reaction to that? The reaction to that was, well, then it's just we tack it on to the end of the service, uh, and it's just a reminder to us uh, of, of the Lord, almost like the opposite. Like, it doesn't have any meaning other than just a simple reminder uh, of the uh, death of the Messiah. Well, that's maybe going a little too far the other way, that it does have real uh, import and, uh, and meaning. We read in the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, Yeshua talks a lot about bread, right? You know, uh, he says uh, here, for example, uh, in the uh, sixth chapter in verse uh, 32, Yeshua said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, 
But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and given to uh, the world. So, of course, they said, hey, give us this bread, right? Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And then you read farther on down uh, in, the, uh, in the chapter, Yeshua says in verse 48, uh, he says, I am the bread of life. Make no mistake. Like, you know what I mean? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So now they're saying, wow, wait a minute, right? The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat, right? Yeshua therefore said to them, and he loved to do things like this. You know, like I'm going to say something to you that's going to sound so radical and so strange, right? You got to get what I'm really trying to say, right? So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I shall raise him up on the last day. My flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. Oh, I mean, I could go on in there. Now, now we are not cannibals, uh, nor vampires, uh, nor anything, uh, nor anything like that. What was he doing? He does, he does what he often did. He spoke an exaggeration, right, to make a point. And what was his point? Is uh, that we have to not physically eat him, right? But we have to internalize him. We must embrace him. We must identify with him. You see. Uh, and, uh, and so when we come to Messiah's table, this is one of those physical demonstrations that God has given to us of recognizing that he, that, uh, he is in our midst and that when we participate, God is at work in our lives. It's not, we're not eating his flesh. We're not drinking his blood. It's matzah, it's grape juice, okay? But... The act of, of engagement is a spiritual act in which God is involved in our hearts and in our lives and in our community. Last Monday, right, on Rosh Hashanah, we went uh, down to Creekside and we all took a, uh, we all took a stone, right? And we, and we said some prayers, we sang, and we threw the stone in the water. Well, it wasn't just let's uh, skim stones on the water right? It had, the physical act had real significant meaning to us. Remember what I said? I said, think of one thing that's holding you back. One uh, issue in your life, a temptation that is a real struggle, whatever it may be, and look at that stone and identify that stone with that struggle or with that sin and then throw it in the water. So the act of doing it has uh, a real sense of spirituality, and it is, an, like you might say, an instrument of transformation, you, you, might, you might say. And so Messiah's table is the same. Same thing with immersion, you know? Uh, and so is uh, Messiah's table. So uh, many years ago, I gave a, a series of messages on 1 Corinthians. And when I came to the 11th chapter, I became very convicted. That's where they, they didn't take it correctly. And, they got, and I thought, you know, 
we tack it on to the end of the service. And by doing it that way, we are communicating that it's not very important just by doing it that way. So since then, we don't do it. We do it in the middle of the service, you see, because it is a very important part of our worship. And certainly on on, on Shabbat Shuvah, on the Shabbat of return, it is very significant. So I will suggest that as we participate today, may it be a physical demonstration of return, of return to God, uh, of, of, of repentance, uh, of, of a desire to be right with him, of, uh, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, of removing the sin in every entanglement that keeps us away from him. And so it is a real holy moment, one might say, when we have Messiah's table. I, not just, it's just symbolic of his death. It's more than a symbol. It demonstrates the presence of God. And you know, in Hebrew, in Jewish thought, when you remember you are re-experiencing something, just like the Seder, you know, it's not just about eating the food. It is about re-experiencing deliverance, right? Uh, and, and so may our engagement with Messiah's table be one might say, sharing a fellowship with God. Sharing fellowship with God and with one another. So it is this uh, Shabbat Shuvah, right? This uh, Sabbath of return. And you know, uh, prior to big holidays or in the middle of big holidays, there are two, there's a number of uh, Shabbat days that have special names and meaning, but there's two that are really, really important, right? One is just before Passover, and that is Shabbat Hagadol, the great Sabbath, right? Uh, and uh, the tradition there is to read through the Haggadah and to familiarize ourselves again and be prepared for Passover. And then there is Shabbat Shuvah, this uh, a Sabbath that comes in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, and uh, we know that these, uh, this 10-day uh, period... Between uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the days of awe, as they're called, are, are a significant period of time for us when we're called upon to repent. We're called upon to, to return. And return takes a, a lot of meanings. And we'll, we'll t- we talked about that on Rosh Hashanah, uh, actually last Shabbat and the two services uh, on uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah about what uh, repentance is, and then we talked about the fruit of repentance uh, in the morning service. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, in, even in our Bible studies this week, we've been, uh, the ones I've led anyway, we've been talking, uh, we've been talking ab- about it, right? Uh, everything from uh, uh, returning uh, in our own walk with the Lord uh, to a, a, you know, a moral and ethical way of life, of, uh, of forgiving one another, receiving forgiveness, and all that that means. We looked at a number of biblical uh, exa- examples of it. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we learn is that there, it, while we are saved by grace, while we are delivered, while we come to know the Lord by the grace of God and nothing of ourselves, certainly, right? that we have a responsibility by our own will to return, to return. We're not robots, you know? We're not robots. I, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was considering the claims of the Messiah, I was really considering the claims of the Messiah. I wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid, you know what I'm saying? 
Uh, it wasn't like I was in some kind of trance. Uh, and I said, okay, I'll believe it. No, I considered the claims of the Messiah and by the grace of God believed. Um, but I, uh, I, I entertain the notion. I, by my will, by my, we like to say volition, right? Uh, I uh, engaged the concept, the idea of coming to know the Lord. And that is why we read throughout the scriptures, return. It's not just lay low, take a nap. It's not, you know, it's not like the Matrix. You know, do you ever see the movie The Matrix, right? We're not like laying underground with like something coming out of us, right? And then there, uh, that's, the, that's the real us, but then there is the simulated us. You know, by the grace of God, we're, uh, we're, doing, we're, we're doing whatever we're doing. No, we are real people, right? Uh, and that is why God says uh, throughout the scriptures, return, like come back, you know? Uh, and, uh, and of course, it's always by the grace of God that he receives us and does a great work in our lives, but it is important that we understand that, you know, by our will. So, I, you know, th that should be very good news to us because what it means is, remember I've said this, that God believes that our lives can change. When he says return, that means he believes that we're not stuck. We're not stuck in the past. We're not stuck by however we've lived. We're not stuck uh, when we're not identified by the sins uh, of our lives. No, we can really return. He really believes in transformation. God really, and he's the one who, tra who uh, transforms. And so therefore, if he really believes it, who am I to say no? You know? Uh, so he says, return, right? So in this book of Hosea, it's a, a, a great uh, a book of the Bible. And of course, we're not going to do a Bible study on all of Hosea. But what we want to realize uh, is uh, that it can be divided up into a few different parts, okay? Uh, one is at, at the beginning. At the beginning, uh, we see that uh, 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 Hosea is married to this woman, and her name is Gomer, and she is a, uh, and she is a, uh, a, a harlot, uh, right? Uh, and she has children, and this all represents Israel, right? She, uh, the, their marriage uh, represents God and Israel, and they have children, right? And we read uh, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, I am the Lord, and he said, as they begin to have children, name the first one Jezreel, for yet in a little while, and I will, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have com no compassion. I will not have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the hand of the Lord and will not deliver them by, the bo by bow, sword, battle, horse, or horseman. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God, right? So we see that uh, Israel is in a bad situation, right? Israel is in a bad place of, uh, uh, of a judgment. 
of going after other, other uh, uh, gods. But in the second chapter, uh, there's good news, right? In verse, uh, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope, as a door of hope. Isn't that something? You see right at the beginning that there is uh, this uh, situation where Israel is disobedient, pictured as adultery, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, and they have children and it looks like there's no hope. But there really is hope, right? And the valley of Achor is a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. As in the days of her youth. See, God is going to restore all that. As in the days of her youth. As in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, which is a, you know, like a very tender name. You know, Ishi, my man. Okay. You will no longer call me Baali, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will, uh, they will be mentioned by their names no more. In other words, they'll be cut off, cut off completely. New life. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things in the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. It will make them lie down in safety. Okay. Uh, how beautiful is that? And then when you read uh, the uh, end of the chapter, just the last verse of chapter 2, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will also have compassion on her who have not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, thou art my God. So you see here, really, the story in a nutshell. Then you have chapter 3. It's only five verses, which explains how all of this how the story of Hosea and Gomer is an illustration of God's relationship with Israel. Then the Lord said, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, meaning they're participating in foreign worship. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a half of barley, which is a low price. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. In other words, I'm going to take you out of that condition. I love you. I'm going to, I'm going to take you out of that condition. Okay? For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So when Hosea takes back a Gomer, what he says is that I'm going to remove you from that situation, but we are not going to have relations. In other words, we're not going to be yet uh, completely reconciled. And so that God says, that's what I'm going to do with Israel. I'm going to remove them from, notice what it says very carefully. They'll remain many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice, and then it says, or without pillar, without ephod, or household idols. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Consummation, you see. Then the rest of the book, the rest of the letter, the rest of the prophecy, 4 through 14, is sort of, 
going back and forth, explaining the sins of the people and the desire of God for them to return. You know, sort of like uh, playing it out, you might say. And what you see is in it is the love of God for the people and their obstinate desire to go after what's wrong. But God continues to go after them. God continues to seek them out, right? Just like we saw in Psalm 139. Uh, remember that uh, uh, last Shabbat, that uh, God chases after them. God keeps going after them. And he's torn, his heart is torn uh, over them, right? So you see, I just wanted to point something out now in the fifth chapter, okay? In verses four and five, and this is really important to get. We might say, first we might say, okay, I see the uh, theology in here, and, uh, and uh, you know, Israel is the harlot. Israel has gone after other, other gods, and so they're the harlot, right? Uh, and then we, we get a little squeamish over the story of Gomer and Hosea. She's the harlot. Oh, wow. But notice what God says in verses 4 and 5 here. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah has stumbled with them. Now Judah has stumbled with them. Very important. When you personalize this, we are all the harlot. We are all Gomer, all of us. Sin is the great equalizer. We are all the harlot, all of us. How important it is for us to understand that. And that the sin that we may be entangled in is like prostitution, no matter who we are. And God says, come back to me. All of us, we have secret sins. We have issues in our lives. We have all kinds of things. We have all kinds of temptations and, and, and things that we we uh, certainly don't share with others. We may not worship gods of wood and stone, but we worship everything from institutions to feelings to um, uh, a particular way of life to things that we really want and we really crave, right? And some of them may be culturally, uh, culturally um, uh, permissible even, right? But to God, it's all bad. We may, we may um, uh, think of ourselves as, um, as pretty good, you know? But remember when, when Hosea saw God in his throne and his majesty? Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. So all of us have real need of repentance and being restored to God. The saddest thing is that when we see, is, is us seeing ourselves as, hey, I'm like over the hump, you know? I kind of got my act together with the Lord. I'm, I'm doing okay. And that's scary, you know? The fact is, is that we all always are in need of returning. We should, of course, have victory over sin. We should sin less, right? We should have victory. We should have, uh, you know, a worldview that is uh, one of restoration, uh, certainly a renewal of the mind, no doubt, uh, uh, and confidence in the Lord, uh, you know, and enter through a new and living way into his presence uh, and really experience uh, living hope and rise above our circumstances and have the joy of the Lord despite whatever's happening because of our knowledge and relationship with him. 
right? Absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, we need to heed the call to return. You know, and, you know, in chapter 11, and of course, uh, you know, we, uh, we know that because we sing a song sometimes from chapter 11 of Hosea. And you see the angst of God here and his desire for uh, restoration, his desire for repentance. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Verse 8. How can I surrender you, O Israel? Isn't this just like real relationships, right? How can I give you up? How can I get rid of you? This is God and Israel. Real love. He loves them so much. His love is unchanging. Anger, disappointment. Yes, we see that. God experiences that in his people. But those come and go. The unchanging love lasts forever. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like these pagan places? Adma Zeboim. My heart is turned over within me. It's a euphemism for I'm dying on the inside in my kishkis, if you know, if you know what that means, right? That's what he's saying. My heart is turned over within me. I'm, I'm experiencing like a stomachache over this, right? Okay, all my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy uh, Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In fact, they will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. And it goes on. But you see, the point is you see the the, the, the anger of God and the disappointment, but the love of God overtaking all of that. Oh, he loves us so much. That is why when you come to the 14th chapter, it means so much when he says again, return, 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 O Israel, to the Lord your God. You know, it's significant that he says, to the Lord your God. He makes it personal. Adonai Elohechem. To the Lord your God. Not just to El. Return to God. It's like, return to me. You know what? The God of Israel. yud vav Return to me. The Lord your God. He makes it personal. Return to me. Okay? For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. You've stumbled because of your iniquity. Stumble is an important word, kind of. We don't have time to flesh the whole thing out, but stumble means you haven't fallen. You're not lost forever. You've stumbled. And uh, when I read that, I think of a particular passage in the Brit Kadashah, in the New Covenant, in the Book of Romans, in the 11th, uh, in the 11th chapter. In Romans 11, you read in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. The point is, for us, is that stumbling and falling are two different things. Stumbling is like tripping and falling down and you get up again. Falling is like backing up to take a picture at the Grand Canyon and you step one step too far. You can only do that once, right? But stumbling, you can get up again, right? You have stumbled because of your uh, iniquity. And how many of us haven't done that, right? Not lost, not gone, 
But falling down, we get skin knees, you know, and sometimes you fall on your face, and then you got the whole thing with the scrape on your face, and the, you know, that whole thing. Ay, 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 ay. And it is not good. It does not feel good at all. Okay? So you have stumbled uh, because of your iniquity. Uh, it's not, you're not, it's not a lost cause. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Take words with you. Now, when he says words, of course, it's not just, it's not an incantation. Uh, you know, it's not uh, anything like that. It can be a prayer from a sedur, but it has to be coming from your heart, right? Come with words that are like from your heart, right? And come back to me with words. In other words, it's meaningful. Sacrifices were important, but it wasn't the sacrifice itself. It wasn't the animal itself. It was the, the heart, right? Uh, that meant everything. And return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. That verse, I'm going to suggest that Hosea was influenced perhaps by Psalm 51. How could that be, right? If you go back to Psalm 51, this is David's great prayer of repentance. What does he say? First of all, at the beginning, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. You know, that, you know back in uh, uh, chapter 34 of Exodus, God's loving kindness is overflowing. It's abounding, right? So according to your loving kindness, be gracious to me. That means that God's grace never runs out. It never runs out. Okay? Be gracious. He comes with nothing. He comes with no excuses, no buts, if, ands, or buts, as my mother used to say. Right? Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Because it's in my mind all the time. That's what verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. All right, we'll stop there. Be gracious to me, right? And that's exactly what we're supposed, what he says. Pray like this. Come with words like this, you know? Okay. So you could call it the, you know, words of repentance uh, uh, with these kinds of words. But then you notice it also, he also uh, says that we may present the fruit of our lips. Oh, this is really interesting. Because if you go down to verse 15, of Psalm 51. This is what we say every day at the beginning of the Amidah, and we say it on Shabbat, of course. Oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. But then see what he says? For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art, or you, wow, just you, are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's how we need to come back with our words. You know what's interesting? You never read anywhere in the prophets uh, of, 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 uh, of the need to repent for putting the sacrifice like upside down. Or you offered the sacrifice like, uh, 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 you know, uh, without burning exactly uh, this part of it. Or, uh, in other words, what the prophets are always harping on 
is the moral and ethical failures of the people. Because the sacrifices and the traditions all are vehicles of return. But the people have to return from their heart. Have to return from their heart. That's why throwing the stone on Rosh Hashanah means nothing. Having a little piece of matzah in a cup can mean nothing. Even being immersed can mean nothing if it's not from the heart. You see? If it's not from the heart. So that's why he says, that's why he says this here. God loves a broken heart, but a broken heart hurts. A broken heart is painful. A broken heart is full of regret and remorse and might even have some anger there and all kinds of things about, you know, think about that, a broken and contrite heart. Who likes a broken and contrite heart? Who say, who can say, praise the Lord, I have a broken and contrite heart. Amen, I have a broken and contrite heart. No, oh, I have a broken and contrite heart. It is not pleasant. It is the doorway, though, of the fruit of repentance. It is how we come back. And so we see that here in chapter 14, okay? All right. Receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. There's something else here. We don't have time for it right now. But it is interesting that in order to present the fruit of our lips, we have to repent, you know? In order to uh, receive, the, the, in order to offer praise, we have to have the right heart. And we did talk about that when we talked about the fruit of repentance. You can listen to that message from the morning of Rosh Hashanah. Okay? And then he says these words. Now, say words like this. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Wow, you mean like governments aren't going to save us? You mean like even uh, our own government isn't going to save us? get out of here, right? Yes. Isn't that interesting that that is what he says repent of? Oh, wow. Repent of that idolatry that world leaders are going to save us. They're not. In a certain respect, they're kind of irrelevant. God is going to do what he's going to do with whom he's going to do it, you know? We need to be really careful uh, when it comes to those things. We need to repent of this intertwining, like a Havdalah candle of uh, patriotism, the flag, and God. We got to be careful about that. Yes, we need to be good citizens. Yes, all of that. No doubt. Responsible citizens. It's important even if God calls us to become involved in the process. That's fine. But recognize that Yeshua is our king, and he is the one who brings transformation. Okay? Let us remember, isn't it interesting that that is what he says, repent of. All right. And the work of our hands. And then it says, for in you, the orphan finds mercy. In you, the orphan. Why does he say that? It sounds like it's out of place. You know, orphans in that day were not like orphans today. Orphans today would say, oh, we take care of orphans. In that day, orphans were like nothing. And if the orphan finds mercy, you're going to find mercy. That's what he's saying. You're like orphans. You're like orphans, but God loves orphans. God loves those who are vulnerable and they find mercy. And so you will find mercy when you repent. God will have pity on you. He will indeed restore you. Okay, and so then we read the magnificent verse four. I will heal their apostasy. 
I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. One of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. Okay? Yes, that's not an exaggeration. I will heal their apostasy. Okay, so the word apostasy is kind of interesting. I don't know if you read the Darash. Maybe. But the word for apostasy is really kind of interesting. Uh, you know, the word shuv is used over and over again here. Shuv, return, 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 come back, return, turn again. Uh, you know, it's used over and over again. So I just thought I'm going to read it uh, here. Uh, when, when he says here, I will, I will heal their apostasy. Erfa meshuvatam. Meshuvatam. Does that sound, do you hear something in there? Meshuvatam. The same word, the, in terms of the, its uh, root anyway, the root of come back to God is the same root of apostasy. Why? Because they have to do with going somewhere. Okay? Because, uh, you ever use the term, you ever, you know, this is like a common Christian kind of term. Why, those backsliders, right? Backsliding, right? You know why? You know where that word comes from? It comes from the King James Version as well as the Jewish Publication Society Version, English translation of this and other verses like it, right? It means waywardness. That's what it means. In other words, just as shuv, shuvah means return to the way of the Lord, Mishuvah means like leave the way of the Lord. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So uh, that's why you get apostasy. We usually think of it as just like doctrine, like believing something that's wrong. But it means to, to jettison out, to take an exit. Get off at the wrong exit, you might say, right? Uh, and uh, go off and do your own thing. I'm on the road, but bam, there I go. Okay, so apostasy. But the great thing is, he says, I will heal their apostasy, okay? I will heal their going the wrong way. I will heal their waywardness. Now, very interesting. Uh, you know, you read, uh, for example, in uh, just in chapter 11 in verse 7. So you see here, just to get the point of this word apostasy, so my people are bent on turning from me. That's the Meshuvah. Turning from me. Going away from me. As opposed to returning to me. Okay? That's a positive. But God says, I'm going to heal that. Right? Uh, and so there's a couple of verses I want us to look at. All right? And one is in Jeremiah. Uh, going as fast as I can. Chapter 3. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 3, in verse 22. Return, O faithless sons, for I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for thou art our God. So the beginning of the verse is, I will heal you, and then they return. You know, the statement of returning. I will heal your faithlessness. Okay, they're the same kind of idea. Then there's a famous passage in Isaiah chapter 53. Right? In Isaiah 53. In verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. In the passage, 
The problem is sinfulness, waywardness, faithlessness. Again, you see, I will heal you. I will heal you. And then in chapter 57, in verse 19, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. I will heal him. So may I suggest to us that when we're talking here about this issue of healing, it's not, he's not referring uh, to simply the, like a, a doctrinal idea of I'm healed of my sin, like I'm just healed of sin, you know? But the fact of the matter is, is that waywardness, turning away, is really debilitating. It does things to us. It harms us emotionally, mentally, physically, and of course spiritually. Creates bad memories. It harms our families, those around us. It even affects our worldview, maybe the way we think, right? So when we walk away from the Lord, all kinds of things happen. But God says, when you come back, I will heal you. You will be whole. It's a real thing that God says when we return, when we come with the broken and the uh, contrite heart. And you know, I know I'm going over, but I just wanted to read uh, something uh, from this verse. Uh, that comes uh, from the uh, Talmud, of all places, okay? Uh, and uh, this passage in Isaiah chapter 57, peace, peace, you know, and, and I will heal you, you know? Uh, there's something very interesting, and I, I won't read the whole thing, other than it doesn't have to do with, uh, I'm just reading off of something, it doesn't have to do with uh, uh, geography. Uh, a person who has sinned and stopped, now listen to this, this is really important. Okay, so let's like take, okay. The person who has sinned and stopped is of a higher religious order than one who has never sinned or has never known of sin or uh, in his provocative words, of speaking of a particular rabbi, in the spot where penitents stand, there is no room for the perfectly righteous. His proof text, which is this passage in Isaiah 57, where it says, I will heal you, without which it would be quickly dismissed, is our very verse, the four words from uh, yeah, chapter 57, 19. He speaks of the religiously distant and alienated and sinful first. Those who are far off, he's using that. Their return is especially pleasing to God. Only then does the prophet welcome the near, those who have never sinned or departed from God. And so the bottom line he has here is, I'm, I'm reading something, that was written by a, uh, on this text in Isaiah 57. The merit of the penitence is higher than that of the perfectly righteous because the former have struggled harder to return. Isn't that something? It's very similar, by the way, to what Yeshua taught throughout the Gospels, like the prodigal son, the relationship of the son who stayed home to the son who returns. God loves the son who returns because he returned. It's hard work. It's hard work to return and to stay returned, you see? And so God says, I will heal you in Isaiah 
uh, uh, in Hosea chapter 14. I will heal their waywardness and all that goes with it, right? And then he says, I will love them freely. Unhindered, unhinged love. I will love them freely. Nothing will stand in the way. Wow. Okay? For my anger has turned away from them. The love always stays. But my anger has turned away from them. And then the next few verses talk about what it means, what it looks like. Restoration. You know, the dew in Israel is very important for growth, for, for fruitfulness. I will make you fruitful. You will be fruitful. You will be robust. You will be satisfied. You will be whole. That's what he's saying. And then finally, uh, uh, you know, he says, Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? For it is I who answer and look at you. I am like a luxurious, a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. From me comes your fruit. And then whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let them know. You know, and so just uh, 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 finally, you know, in the Brit Hadashah, we read about fruitfulness in John 15. I won't even take the time to turn there, right? Uh, I am the vine, uh, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me just tell you that, why did Yeshua use a vine there? May I suggest that in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, he talks about Israel being a fruitless vineyard. You're a fruitless vineyard. You know, you're, 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 you're not, I'm, I'm disappointed in you and everything. But now God, out of that fruitless vineyard, God brings out of that, is, Yeshua is Israel, part of Israel. Out of that fruitless vineyard comes a vine, like a living vine, who brings healing to the vineyard, you see. And you see? That there's never, it's never a lost a cause. That if you are one who uh, has been uh, that wayward one, right? He's saying, come back, come back, O Israel. But whoever you are, come back, right? Doesn't matter. And in fact, doesn't uh, Paul even take a passage from Hosea uh, um, about being far and near, right? And he relates it to Gentiles and Jews, right? Doesn't matter whoever you are, right? In Messiah Yeshua, return and abide in the vine. And even if you've already returned, return again. Come back. Come back, O Israel. Come back, O people of God, right? And so, uh, uh, no matter who we are, it's never a lost cause. So on Shabbat Shuvah, let us return. Let us return to the Lord. Let us uh, be healed. Sometimes, you know, it's not instantaneous when we repent. There's a process of repentance. There's a process of, uh, of reconciliation and a process of restoration. But healing is possible and experiencing the, the, uh, the unhindered love of God, yes. And so during this high holiday season, let us indeed Return to the Lord. Let us abide in Yeshua, the great healer, and let us indeed be healed and experience his love uh, and his fullness. And may we indeed bear the fruit of this. Let's pray.
Lord, God, thank you for, uh, Lord, your word, and thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, uh, to engage you. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that this would indeed be a season of return, Lord. Lord, thank you, God, that uh, you never give up on us. You always chase after us. You're always searching our heart. Lord, may we stop running. May we stop and turn. Lord, repent and be restored to you. And Lord, may we find healing, healing in our families, healing in our relationships, healing in our relationship with you, healing in our own selves, Lord. And may we live the life that you called us to live, to serve you with a whole heart, Lord, unhindered, unfettered, uh, Lord, and uh, uh, God, uh, may we, as we read in Psalm 37, Lord, may we commit ourselves to you. May we delight in you. Lord, may we indeed uh, return uh, uh, to you, Lord. Uh, may we cultivate faithfulness, Lord. We pray, God, that we would commit our way to you, trust in you. Lord, we pray that we would rest in you and wait patiently for you, that we would not get angry because of him who prospers in his way. Lord, God, may we indeed return to you. We pray in Messiah's name.